Good morning, everybody. How y'all doing today? There's a lot of love in this place, man. Like, I, I'm, for a second, I was like, I'm just going to stand here and see how long it takes for everybody to just generally have that, like, you know, classroom feel where, like, the teacher stands up and everybody just gradually is like, all right, that type of thing. But that didn't happen. Like, I had to say something, you know. Uh, Tori messed up my joke. Usually, uh, the stand, because Tori Nicker Giants is up here, I had to push it down. But he pushed it down for me. Uh, because apparently I'm the shortest person that works at the church. So that's all good. Uh, for those of you that don't know, my name is Josh. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at The Well, in addition to uh, church planner. As, as Shout out to Tori for the shout outs. Appreciate that. Um, I'm really excited this morning because we get to continue in our series uh, fully alive. And what fully alive actually is, is it's exploring a verse in John 10 that says the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus comes that we would have a life and life more abundantly. Not just life, but life more abundantly, my abundant life. And today we're actually going to talk about something that's so closely knit to our joy, so closely knit to our, 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 our fulfillment, our satisfaction. It's so closely knit to this abundant life Yet it's something that actually isn't touched on that much. But man, why wouldn't it be touched on that much? I mean, it's, it's, it's all about our joy. It's all about our good. I know some of you guys are getting really excited right now. It's like, well, we're going to talk about joy and good. And, and the actual topic, if you're trying to guess it, uh, is obedience. As a collective exhale, like, ah. Like, you know, like that, that generally happens. I get that. I get that. But I think that's because... In the Christian dialogue, there's this, there's this missing connection of how we, we perceive joy and how we perceive obedience, I mean. Right? I remember in college, uh, I worked at a clothing store. And when you work at a clothing store and you're in college, the joint closes at 9. But you're like, oh, man, my life is just getting started at 9, so that's okay. But... When we would actually close down, I would have to go and check all the things, right? You have to, to get all the pants right, and then you have to, to clean this up, and then you have to go check the inventory, and then you got to count the money, and then X, Y, and Z. So we didn't get out until 9.45. But I had to be obedient to all these little tasks that were taking place in order so I could go out and enjoy my life. And that's how we perceive obedience. You see that, like, oh, man, if I do all these things, if I obey all these rules, then at that point, I'll be able to go and have joy. I'll be able to go and have fulfillment, but I have to do this first. Yet the Bible and Jesus' teachings have a completely contradictory view than that. No, instead, obedience becomes the foundation of our joy. And if there's something that we really, really want to take away today, it's this, all right? Uh, no, next one. It's not that blank screen. Yeah, sorry. Uh, Though there are many voices present in our world, only the voice of the Lord brings life. His commandments are for our joy. Okay? So as we get started today, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hands. The ushers are actually going to be coming forward. They'll get you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, man, take that home. Read it. That's our gift to you. We want your eyes to be in that scripture, in that word, be in there. In addition, if you have your, your, your YouVersion Bible app, Right, you can go to the menu, events, and you can track along with like some sermon notes in there. You can also just type this into your uh, browser; it'll take you to those Uvirgin sermon notes as well. All right, now we're gonna go ahead and dive in because we don't have that much time today. We're gonna be in First Samuel 15, and we're gonna start at 17. Okay. And Samuel said, 
Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you, why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission, uh, the mission on which the Lord has sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, uh, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, if you would, uh, before we get started, let's just go ahead and just, I just want to take a second to pray with us, all right? Let's pray, pray over this time and all that good stuff before we dive in. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you provide a blessing in, in the instruction, the teaching, the hearing, the declaration of your word. I ask that you would allow all distractions to be removed from us. Allow me to be completely emptied. Let me uh, only say what you have desire to say to your people. Uh, so yeah, we love you. We thank you. I ask you would bless this time. I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so 1 Samuel 15. We read a lot there. That was quite a chunk. If you know me, I'm always a fan of taking whatever we just read and exploring like all the other places in Scripture that this could really be related, right? Because one of the things that in Christianity and in, in, in the Bible, one of the, the scary parts that we can sometimes do, uh, it's a mistake, is that we take one section of Scripture and then we say, okay, this one section of Scripture, I'm going to go ahead and apply this to my life. Yet, when we don't consider that there's a context around that in the chapter, in the book, in the entire Bible, that the Lord desires to communicate to us and say, yo, this is exactly what I'm trying to tell you, then we begin to misapply the Bible to our lives. Now, 1 Samuel 15, 17 through 24 has roughly a thousand years of context. So we don't have enough time to go from Genesis to 1 Samuel. That's like, you know, however many books of the Bible that is. We don't got time, right? Like some of you already like, bro, I'm ready to get out of here. I can't go from Genesis. You know, I get that. So what we're going to do is we're just going to kind of cover it really quick. Now in here, we see that Saul actually has a moment where he's instructed by God to destroy the Amalekites, and he disobeys. Now, the Amalekites were a tribe that lived in the promised land of Israel. And back when Moses actually led the people of Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus, when they were traveling in the wilderness, there were some people that were falling behind, that were weary, that were tired, right? It's the desert. So the Amalekites came, and they begin to attack the Israelites, the ones that were weary, the ones that were tired, they killed men, women, children. They took loot. They took the oxen, right? And in one of the most incredible accounts in all the Bible, Moses turns around. He sees what's happening. He says, Joshua, go and defend us. Attack them. Not me, right? This is another Joshua. But what ends up happening is Joshua goes, he attacks, and Moses goes up to a mountaintop and holds his hands up. 
And as he holds his hands up before the Lord, the Israelites begin to win the battle. But every time Moses' arms grow tired and they sink down and his hands fall, the Amalekites begin to prevail. And so Moses sits on a rock. Her, H-U-R-R, he's a comrade of, of Moses. And Moses' brother Aaron come alongside him and they hold his hands up until Joshua and Israel prevail in the battle. But that's not where the Amalekites end. Because they end up surviving, they, they rebuild their army, right? And it says in Judges that the Amalekites actually were pillaging during that time of Judges, you know, uh, like centuries later, at least 150 years later, that they were pillaging the Israelite crops during harvest season, coming in, attacking again and again. So is this God just kind of looking at the Amalekites and going, all right, man, it's time for revenge and payback? Well, no. Because in order to understand even farther context, we have to go all the way back to Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, the Lord calls Abraham and says, Abraham, go out. You're going to be the father of many nations, but you have to wait a little while before you inherit the land that I promised you. Why? Because the Amorite iniquity is not yet complete. The Amorites were actually an ancestral tribe of the Amalekites. And if you notice something, he says, you can't take the land yet because the Amorite iniquity is not yet complete. That was almost a thousand years before what we read today. That means God had grace on a people that were pillaging, doing evil for a thousand years. This isn't God just waging war and having revenge. This is the Lord providing a time for a people to repent, to move away from their evil, yet having long suffering and mercy for a thousand years. I don't even know what it's like to be patient with somebody for like 15 minutes. And you're telling me God had mercy on the people for a thousand years, yet he did not take anything from them until the time came where their sin, their iniquity had ripened. It was complete. It was full to the point that God in his mercy for the rest of the world had to look at the Amalekites and go, no, this requires my judgment. For the sake of my creation, for the sake of my people, this culture, this society has grown so hard-hearted toward me that I have, in my mercy and grace, I have to cast judgment on them. Now, in our current zeitgeist, in our, our, our current thoughts, right, we have a lot of uh, talks about war and stuff like that right now, and it's scary. We had stuff going on in Syria, you know, a couple weeks ago, right? Like, there's different, different countries. I'm not going to name all of them, all right? But maybe because I don't know most of them. Uh, but, but the thing is, this, what I want to cover real quick is that this is not any type of advocacy for war or against it. This is a text that displays a merciful, patient, long-suffering God taking a thousand years to allow a people to repent, yet they never have, and they become increasingly evil to the point that out of his mercy for the rest of the world, he has to cast judgment. That's a far cry from people struggling for power or war acts from one, one leadership to, to its people. This is a collective society and culture that the Lord has to deal with. And so we can have those conversations. Christians should. They should have that dialogue. I don't have the answers to that. Better men do. But what I know is today... We're dealing with something completely different than just war. This is the Lord casting judgment and doing his will for the sake of the greater good of his creation. 
And that responsibility actually fell to Saul. Samuel comes to Saul, right? He says, Saul, it's time. Amalekites, right? Do the thing. So Saul, Saul's ready. Saul comes up. He gets the army together. Saul's kind of a G like that. It's okay. So he, he gets everybody together. He's, he's, he, he, he goes. They start waging the war. And, and stuff is happening, right? He, he starts, he, he, the, the whole battle, y'all know, it's gruesome, right? There's blood. Y'all seen like Troy and all those type of movies. Y'all know what it's like. It's basically that, okay? Now, what ends up happening, though, the battle begins to taper off. And it looks like victory is at hand. But when that battle begins to end, that's when another battle comes up. And it's a battle that doesn't involve a sword. It's a battle that doesn't involve a shield. It's a battle that involves a mind, and it's a battle that involves your heart. Because it's in this moment where voices begin to trickle out from that ground, that bloody ground. Voices begin to trickle out of that. You see, far before any moment of disobedience, when Saul said, well, Samuel said to devote everything to destruction, God said to devote everything to destruction, I don't know about that. I want to keep some sheep. I want to keep some oxen. I want to keep some things for my guys. Before that moment happened, there was a battle that waged in Saul's heart, and it was a battle that contended with a multitude of voices that were contradicting God's. Saul had heard God's. In 15, 1 and 2, Samuel comes to Saul and says, these are the words of the Lord. But as we track through the text, we begin to see that, hey, now the, the people have a voice that's mentioned in verse 24. We read that. In verse 17, it says that Saul sees himself as little in his own eyes. That's Saul's voice working now. In fact, in, in 15.14, if we could put that up on the screen, in 15.14, and Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? These words, bleeding, lowing, in Hebrew literally mean voices. They don't mean bleeding and lowing. That's there so that we can understand. But he's literally saying, what are these voices that I'm hearing, Saul? What are these voices? The, the author of 1 Samuel wanted us to know that, man, before any moment of disobedience comes the moment where we're waging war with voices that attempt to contradict the word of the Lord in our lives. And that's the battle that's far greater for Saul than the battle against the Amalekites was. Now, real quick, this is, this is I mean, I think this is historically true of the human experience. Now, I mean historically true. Because it was true for Saul, but if you think about all of us from the beginning to now, right, from Adam and Eve up until this moment, Josh standing like right here at this little stand right there, that's true. Adam and Eve in the garden, the Lord says, hey, for your good, Tend to the garden, work the garden, eat of any tree you want, go make culture, reproduce, do all that good stuff, have a great time, don't eat of that tree. Why? Because you'll die. The voice of the Lord, right? And then the serpent comes in. And what happens? His voice says, did God really say this? Did God really say that? And then all of a sudden another voice appears. It's, it's Eve's own voice. And now she's taken the voice of the serpent and the voice of God and goes, well, did he say that? Did he mean that? Now, now I'm going to start weighing out what's best in my own eyes. 
Far before Adam or Eve picked the fruit, they waged the war against those voices, voices that contradicted the word and the voice of the Lord. Now, Saul, he dealt with some distinct voices. And the reason I kind of want to highlight that and the reason I want to go here is because he's dealing and struggling and battling against voices that I really do believe we encounter, struggle, and interact with constantly on a daily basis now. And throughout the text, there's five that I legitimately was like, yo, man, this, I, I'd be going through this, that I was like, man, this, this is worth looking at. The first voice that I, I want us to look at is in verse 24. It's the voice of fear. The voice of fear. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I feared the people and obeyed their voice. You see, Saul heard and saw the rumblings of the people, and he began to be filled with a sense of fear that they would have this to say about him. They would have this to say about him. And the saddest part is that this is actually something that's going to echo through the entirety of Saul's life. In the future, when David's on the scene and people start chanting, David has killed his ten thousands, and Saul has killed his thousands, it's going to fill Saul's heart with a fear of David. This voice of fear is something that's constantly working in this man's heart. And in this moment, it's very present and very evident that he's looking at the people and going, what are y'all going to say about me? What are y'all going to do to me? How are you going to think of me? The crazy part is, though, in 1 Samuel 15, 2, at the beginning of this chapter, Samuel comes to Saul and says, hey, here's the word of the Lord from the Lord of hosts. A phrase that literally, mean the, literally means the Lord of armies. It's a phrase that's only used in the prophets, and it was specifically only meant to display and communicate absolute authority and power from God. That if you were to command and hear a word from this voice, there was no other voice that you should fear. Why? Because this voice, the Lord of armies, is all-powerful, all-glorious, almighty, and as you, command, as you follow his command, as you love him, as you obey him, you begin to see that the fear of that God is actually more rooted in the love and affection he has for us because he's good. And so when we see Saul starting to battle with this fear, this voice of fear, what we're actually seeing is that this voice of fear is telling him to disobey by the means of saying there's something greater than God to fear. It's a lie. But that voice of fear will always try to, to, to deceive us, trick us, pull us into disobedience by the means of telling us that, hey, there's something that you should be scared of more. You should fear the power, might, glory, and beauty of God. But it's always a lie. It's never true. Now, the second voice that really, really, really stands out here is the voice of pleasure. The voice of pleasure. In verse 15, it says this. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the best of the oxen as sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. God said, devote everything to destruction. Destroy everything. Destroy all of it. Yet there was a moment in these soldiers' lives, in the heart of Saul, that said, yo, but that looks good. But that looks tempting. 
They actually were going to take these same sheep and oxen and they were going to look, uh, they were going to go to Gilgal and they were going to sacrifice. And basically what that means is they were going to eat, y'all. They were going to feast, all right? So when they made the sacrifice, they were going to have all the meat laid out, all the stuff, and they were going to go Golden Corral style on that bad boy. It was going to be crazy. The, the thing about that is, the thing about that is, the Lord had instructed the opposite. But in the heart of these soldiers, there was a moment that said, yo, that Golden Corral looks really good. It might even look better than what God's promised. And think about how cheap that is. Just take a second. This voice looks at us and goes, hey, what I have is better. What I can offer you is pleasing. All you have to do is give me this. All you have to do is sacrifice this. All you have to do is disobey here. All you have to do is, is just adjust what the Lord said there. And you can have me. And what I have is so much better. But what a cheap trade. What a cheap trade. That the Lord would come and say, here's my instruction, and it's for your good. It's for your blessing. It's for your flourishing. And something else can go, hey, man, here's Golden Corral. Want to trade? Golden Corral ain't even good, y'all. <laughs> like, man, think about it. Think about how cheap that is. But yet that voice constantly comes and with this soothing tongue, with this deceitful tone says, hey, what I have is really good. What I have is so good. All you got to do is trade that for this. And yet it never, ever leaves you satisfied. Just like a trip to gold. Sorry, sorry. No, I'm just playing. I'm just kidding. All right. The third voice I want to cover is the voice of inadequacy. This is the third thing that I would like, you know, that they really popped up out of the thing, because when we look at it, look at verse 17. Saul is like, and Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Saul, little in his own eyes. God makes Saul king of Israel. God had taken Saul from being shepherd in a field covered in mud and dirt and nastiness to being the king of Israel. Shepherd, nastiness, king of Israel. Everything in between my two hands is God. Nothing else. But instead of in that moment looking at where he was and then going praise God and all glory to him, because I myself have not gotten here on my own, but it's to his glory and to his fame that I'm here. Instead, Saul says, man, but I haven't earned this. I need to prove this. I'm little in my own eyes, so please, I'll do whatever it takes for you to look at me and go, you're a good king. Saul, you're a good king. So when someone comes up and says, hey, Saul, yo, man, can I, can I get this? Can I get the sheep? And he's like, what are they going to say? Will they call me a good king? If I say no, will they say something bad about me? That battle, that battle leads right into the one that goes, yeah, man, go ahead and take it. It's those subtle moments that seem so small yet are devastating to our actual joy because they lead to those moments of disobedience. The moments where we take our eyes off of God, 
what he's done and what he's doing in our lives and begin to say, man, what about me? Am I enough? Is he enough in me? Is what he's done in my life enough? That voice of inadequacy always wants to whisper that you need to be more, and it, what it does is end up taking your eyes off of God, who is enough. Like, I'll be honest, man. Like, I came in here, right? Like, this is actually something I said last time, and I was a little embarrassed when I said it, but I was like, yo, it was a good point. Um, when I walked in here today, I didn't, like, I obviously had, like, sermon on my mind and preaching and stuff like that, but y'all would be shocked the amount of mind space that I had that was devoted to being like, yo, my shoes are mad white. I'm serious. And that seems so silly. That seems so silly, but literally the thought becomes like, man, I wonder if anybody noticed that my shoes are crazy white today. I got two comments on it in the past two weeks. And these are Jordans, right? Like this is kind of the thought that starts running through my mind. But you see that sense of like, it's funny, but it's, it's also disturbing if you think about it. In my own mind, the fact that I gotta be like, no, nah, bro, you look good. No, nah, bro, you ironed this shirt today, it's straight. Because that sense of affirmation is actually not there for my good. It's no problem to look nice. That's all good. But when I sit here and go, man, the mission that God gave me today is to herald his word, to exalt Jesus, and to focus on nothing more than everyone in this seat hearing of the beauty, majesty, and glory of God. And I'm sitting here thinking about shoes. That's the lie that tries to enter into your mind and say, hey, this is the mission God gave you. Just like Saul said, this is the mission that God gave you. And then the voice goes, hey, but think about this. But think about this. But think about this. But think about this. I bet you want him to say this about you. I bet you want him to say this about you. I bet you want, man, are you really good enough here? Bump that. God, enough. Mission, me. That's all I got to think about. There's no earning. There's no proving. There's just his goodness and my mission. And that's all. But that voice of inadequacy, it constantly sits there, and go, sits there and goes, hey, what about you? What about you? What about you? Are you enough? Are you good enough? But the only thing it does is try to take our eyes off of how much Jesus is and how enough he is in our lives. Coming in here, false wisdom, the voice of false wisdom. Uh, the text on here is actually wrong. I totally forgot to correct that. It's actually in verse 23. 1523 says, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. If you don't know what divination is, don't worry. I didn't either. But divination, divination was actually the act of them giving a sacrifice, any person giving a sacrifice in hopes that a spirit or some type of soothsayer would be able to provide direction for their lives. It's consulting anything. Oh, yeah. It's consulting anything above God and saying, hey, tell me where to go. Tell me where I should go. Tell me what direction is best for me. Tell me what I need to do. I'll even offer you this. So many times in our own life, I highlighted it almost the entire time because it really does, man, like, it really does, this kind of culminates all three of the last ones that we mentioned, right? Pleasure might be like, yo, pleasure, I can give you all the pleasure if you come here. All you got to do is sacrifice your obedience to God there. Divination, pleasure, tell me what I should do. 
and tell me if it's worth it. Right? Fear. Man, I, I, I'm, I'm scared of these people. I'm worried about what they're going to say. X, Y, and Z. If I disobey, then, then maybe they won't say anything bad about me. Is that worth it? What do I have to sacrifice in order to, to get fear out of the way? That's divination. Where can I find the right path to take, and what do I have to give in order to get it? It's the exact same thing that happened when people sacrificed to idols and said, hey, tell me what direction I should go. Which leads us actually into the last voice. And it's the voice of me. In 23, the second part says, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Divination and idolatry actually go together in this verse because divination says, give me all of the options that I have out here. Give me pleasure. Give me false wisdom. Give me fear. Let me hear what all of you have to say. And then at the end it goes, now let me make the decision. God, you can throw your hat. You can throw your, you know, your name in the hat too. Let me get all these. Let me, get what, let me hear what everybody has to say. But the final word, the final word, that's mine. At the end of the day, I'll get to look out and be like, yo, this is what I chose to do. This one's going to give me pleasure. I want that. No, I don't want that. That's not something that I want. That's not going to give me happiness. Yet the voices just keep pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling. Now, some of us look at this and go, man, that's called freedom. Like, I love the fact that I get to make the choice. I want to know that, yo, I can say, hey, man, um, I want pleasure today. I want this today. I want that today. Right? But the voice of the Lord is the only one of those voices that actually brings life. It's the only one that gives commands that are built for our joy. Now, I totally stole this from Tim Keller, so I can't take credit for it. But Tim Keller has this great analogy where he says, man, if a fish were to be taken out of water and put on land and told that it's free, that's not freedom. The fish is made to be in water. It flourishes in water. If you put it on land and say it's free, give it a few minutes, it's going to die. That's the connection to disobedience that we can lack sometimes. Man, I want to choose. And Proverbs 14 and 16 say there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. When we take that in our own hands, we want to say, I have the final word in my life. And that is the essence of idolatry, family. That's the essence of it to say more than God's command, more than fear's command, more than pleasure's command, more than wisdom's command, more than any of these other things, I have the final say. I, um, while we're on the fish subject, <laughs> I, when I was little, I had a, a betta fish, you know, thing. It was like yay big. Someone's laughing because they already know where the story's going because they did it too. I'm not a psychopath, just ex <laughs> nor a sociopath. Just give me a minute. Uh, we had two betta fish in it. All right? Gosh, so they're already like, oh, the poor fish. Like. And you already know there's a divider between the two fish, right? And one of, them's, one of them is like blue or a dark color. Because betta fish, historically, one of their characteristics is that they are crazy. <laughs> they're crazy. Right? You put a betta fish in a tank with like any other fish, and it's like, Dead. And that's just what it does. It's its instinct. It's the voice that the betta fish hears. That's the only one, okay? The crazy thing was, 
And this is actually where it starts getting embarrassing and really sociopathy, because I used to actually take the color divider out and just leave the clear divider in. And yes, okay, what you did right there. The beta fish would just start going crazy. They would just start ramming into the actual clear plastic, because all they could think of is go, kill the thing. Go, we should fight. Man, like that's, you would see their little, like, their little fin things like flare up and all these colors, and it was actually kind of pretty. That's also very weird to say. Sorry. Um, so it was actually kind of pretty. They would be like fighting each other, right? But the crazy thing is the moment either one of them would bust through that clear deal, it would mean that one of them was going to die. And that thought never registered to the beta fish. It never registered that, man, if I ever got what I wanted here, I would die. That's how the voices work for us. They go, yo, man, it's just, it's just a little click on the computer and some images, but I promise it'll be worth it. It'll bring you pleasure. Will it bring me more pleasure than God will? Well, the voice isn't going to say no. It's going to say, yeah, it will. Lie. It's the one that says, man, I feel like I'm not loved. I feel like I'm not whole. And this person, they say they love me, but they, they ask me to do things contrary to God's will for me. What do I have to give up for that to feel loved and affirmed? Will it make you feel more loved and affirmed than God will? The voice isn't going to say no. Yeah, I'll make you feel whole. Okay, I'll give up. I'll give up this. Every single one of those moments, though, where we look at God and go, you are not as much as this. And the joy, fulfillment, love, affirmation, security, pleasure, delight, life that you offer is less than this. Every time that happens, it's death. Because we run from the only voice that gives us life. That's what disobedience and obedience are. It's less should I do something and more should I live or should I die. Not because of the consequences as much as the very nature of the choice. That obedience would be rooted in joy. That disobedience would be rooted in death. It tells us that, man, when these voices come, and trust me, man, I get it. Like, I get it, y'all. Like, I just told you that when I was walking in here, I had the voice being like, the shoes, bro. Like, I get it. But that's just one small example in a life that I just want to be honest and, and really transparent, you guys, is littered with these voices all the time. I think God wants me to plant a church, and I could not be lying to you guys when, like, for the past two weeks, there was also a voice that was like, yeah, but wouldn't it be easier to just get a job? To get, like, a full-time, like, 50-hour-a-week job that was going to be super stable, and then you could have, like, X, Y, and Z, and your family wouldn't have to worry about this? That's a voice. That's that voice going, hey, man, let me give you some false security and distract you from that mission that God has you on. For you could literally be a host of different things. I don't know. I'm, I'm not in your position. 
What I do know is that every single voice that looks at you and goes, hey man, take your eyes off of Jesus and his goodness is a voice that's, that's, that's a lie, first off. But it's also, it's only aim is to get you to disobey. And that's, that's not just for fun. That's literally to our detriment. And so, what do we do? Right? Because, man, I'm bombarded. You're bombarded. Right? We all know what it's like for a voice over here to say, hey, come this way, man. I'll, I'll give you joy. Come this way. I'll give you pleasure. Come this way. I'll give you satisfaction. Come this way. I'll give you fulfillment. And to sit there and go, man, I don't even know which way to go, but I know that I'm tired. And I know I don't know which direction I'm supposed to go. And, and I know that so many are actually looking at me and saying, disobey the Lord. So what do we do? And I want to invite you with me. Uh, to do something that I don't know if it's easy or hard, but man, I know that it's worth, it's worth doing. And that is I want to invite you to change how you see obedience. I want to invite you to change how you see obedience, how you view it, what you believe about it. Let's go to Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. This will be on the board, so you can just look on here. And now Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. For your good. That means every moment that I obey is me going, you're good, and that was for my good. I trust you. Every moment I obey, the, weight, the battle that's happening at its root is, is God good or is he not? And man, I, I, want, I want to look at obedience and be like, man, that's for my benefit. That's for my good. Why? Because God's good. And if God said it, then that means it has to be good. He made me. He loved me. He sustained me. Man, he said it. That means it's good. And it doesn't mean you're always going to feel that way. But obedience is either an expression of God's goodness or obedience is a sermon to your heart that God is good. I don't care what you feel, heart. In that moment, it's either expressing, you could be full of joy and be like, yeah, man, God is good. It's easy to obey right now. And I'm blessed, I'm this, I'm that, right? I, I'm, I'm fine. It's easy to obey. Or it could be a moment where it's like, man, this is hard and I don't want to. But the act of obedience is not necessarily even just that matter of the heart as much as it is your actions looking at your heart and going, you're wrong. You're wrong because God is good. And I don't care how you feel. I don't care how difficult it is. We're going to do this because we know that he's good. And that means what he's commanded us, what he's asked of us, that that's also good. When we change how we see obedience in this way, the verses that we read before become so much different. Because no longer is it, I prefer obedience over your sacrifice. It's, I prefer your good over your sacrifice. I'm God, and I prefer your good over your sacrifice. I prefer your joy over your sacrifice. Some of us, I'm just gonna, I want to say that just a couple more times because I need all of us to really grasp that. God looks at us 
looks at me, looks at you, and prefers your joy and your good over your sacrifice. He prefers your joy and your good over your sacrifice. That change in how we see obedience should drastically change how we see our God. And the most beautiful moment of obedience is the one that he commands us to have in his son. The command of faith is one that almost exclusively rings out when we actually decide to obey. To obey is literally to believe. I just said that when I'm actually in the good stuff, right, I'm blessed, I feel that way, I can look at God and be like, man, it's easy to obey. It's easy to obey because I easily believe that you're good. In these moments when it's a little bit harder, I have to force myself and say, hey, man, no, I'm going to have faith that God is good. Even in the midst of my heart, even in the midst of the times where I'm struggling, even in the midst of the times where I'm like, man, I don't want to obey the Lord right now. I want to look at this. I want to do this. I want to make this joke. I want to visit this website. I want to cheat on my taxes. That was way too close to home. I was like, <laughs> that just happened like this, this like past week. That's probably why it was on my mind, actually. Um, I did not cheat on my taxes. So... <laughs> You want to do all these things because they feel so much easier. They feel so much easier. And, and I can say, man, this, is, this, this will bring me some happiness. This tax thing will give me an extra few dollars. Right? This girl might make me feel a certain way. This website will at least alleviate this. Whatever it is, it's these moments that say, man, no, I believe to the core of my body he is better. I believe to the core of my body that what he's instructed is for my good because he's good. I believe to the core of my body, and I will yell and scream in my heart and say, no, Jesus is glorious, beautiful, amazing, awesome, and he is better. He's better. I don't care what you offer me, man. I don't care what you give me. I don't care what you ask in a trade. All I know through the bottom of my being is that he's better. And that's all that is. It's the core fundamental belief that, man, I believe to the depths of my soul. And if I don't feel it in that moment, I will preach it to my mind and preach it to my heart that he is better. And that's the moment, right? That's the moment where obedience becomes life because no longer is it just arbitrary. No longer is it just a checklist item. But it is fundamentally me looking and going, Jesus is all that I need, even if I lose everything else. Saul was scared of the people. Saul, Saul, scared of the people and their voice. Yet Samuel went to him and said, the Lord of armies has commanded you. And then he said, then he came back and was like, man, and the Lord of armies made you the king of Israel. Think Think about how, I don't know where you are, but man, in my life, The king of armies took me as a juvenile delinquent arrested for possession of marijuana at 11 or 12, and I'm a pastor. That's the king of glory. That's why I can obey, because I believe that that's better. I've seen what that offers. This is better. This is better. He's better. He's easy to believe in because when we look at it, he's the essence of obedience. It was him that actually obeyed where we failed. It was him that lived the life that we couldn't live. It was him that glorified God where we couldn't glorify God. 
Yet before God the Father, he offered a sacrifice on our behalf. He was both the obedience and the sacrifice that Samuel talks about in that text. And he was rejected by God the Father so that we could be welcomed in and loved and accepted as obedient, as holy, as beautiful. When our obedience is rooted in believing that, having faith in that, no longer does our obedience create the pressure of needing to be perfect. Our obedience just creates the need to be dependent. That's it. Your obedience today, I hope this is encouraging to you, is not an obedience that calls you to be absolutely perfect. Instead, it's an obedience that calls you to be absolutely dependent on Jesus and his obedience. It's because he was obedient that I have any opportunity to know him, to be loved, to hear only the voice of God that says, man, no, I love you. I love you, Josh. I don't care if you're a juvenile delinquent. I love you. What does that sound like for you? What does it sound like? What voices do you need to just tell, shut up? Shut up. Because this voice. It says, y'all, I love you. Uh, to finish up, there's this one quote that I think really captured basically everything I said in like four sentences way better. <laughs> it's John Piper, and this is in his book, uh, The Pleasure of God. Um, it says, our obedience is God's pleasure when it proves that God is our treasure. This is good news. Because it means very simply that the command to obey is a command to be happy in God. The commands of God are only as hard to obey as the promises of God are hard to believe. The word of God is only as hard to obey as the beauty of God is hard to cherish. Man, turn to him today, y'all. Just love him and be loved by him. And if there's something in your heart that you need to repent of and turn from, man, he is listening. And he desires nothing more than to have his voice be the loudest one ringing in your ear. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this uh, time this morning. I thank you that your commands, Lord, are